Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. We have always been here. Black queers, we will always be here. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me or sound like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Welcome to The Race Card on Sin 90.7 FM. The time is... Okay, what's the time? Hold on. 3.03. And I'm Amina Ziard, your host for this afternoon show. We'll begin with an acknowledgement of country... We acknowledge the Kulin people as the owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay respect to the elders, both past and present. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, occupation, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. You're listening to our one-hour show where we chat politics, current affairs, and pop culture with a little bit of a twist, as well as wrapping up the most thought-provoking issues in Australia for the week. Today, we look at... Uh, we'll be looking. Oh, my mic is not completely up. All right, so hopefully we're going to be looking at. Actually, first we're going to be talking to the Foreign Brothers. Uh, be excited for that little interview coming up there in the studio with us. Say hi, guys. Yeah, well, what's happening? Um, and also we talk, we'll be uh, looking at what happened this week. Um, Ifran Yusuf uh, said that Hezbo Tahrir are the Muslim version of Andrew Bolt. So we're talking with Yasser Morsi about that later on the show, as well as um, examining what George Brandis meant when, well, not everyone can be bigots after all, as well as, uh, I guess, looking at the Islamophobia industry. But I guess um, uh, let's do a bit of introductions. Um, We've got the Foreign Brothers with us, so so brothers, yo, yo, yo. introduce yourself. <laughs> Should we introduce ourselves? Yeah, right, go for sweet. it. Um, cool, well, um, we're a collective uh, putting on sort of music events uh, with a very sort of um, focus on multiculturalism and actually sort of opening our space and everything that we do to a various amount of people and artists. Uh, so we've been doing stuff for three years now. Um, putting on events for Melbourne Music Week, putting on events uh, with the City of Yarra Youth Services and various other festivals. So it's been an awesome journey, and uh, we've got Z here, who was one of the last sort of... Okay, yeah, we just jumped the, on the adopted <laughs> brother. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah, now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an artist one. based here in, uh, in Melbourne. I'm, I try and do hip-hop, but um, I, I'm a man of many talents. I, actually, we were just talking about that earlier. I do quite a lot of things, but hip-hop is my main thing. Um, yeah, and I met I, I met the Foreign Brothers at an event called On Renoir. Um One of their uh, one of the brothers there, Kazus Oslo, was DJing, and he yeah. just handed me the mic, and we were freestyling that night. And uh, yeah, history was Connect. made. Yeah, and here we are. Yeah, that's cool. We actually met because of that night that we do at the Evelyn called Momentum, and sort of a big jam session. So Z came once, and 
I think it was like maybe two, three months ago. And yeah, two, three months. <laughs> and since then, it's just been coming back. F- like a bought awesome. one. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember seeing you for the first time at, uh, uh, was it Sampa the Great gig at Northside Records? Yeah. And, and there was some really, really cool stuff happening. Everyone was like freestyling and right. getting into it. And, and yeah, and I guess, yeah. So, so I guess my question in t- to the Foreign Brothers is... <laughs> What kind of music do you guys play, uh, and I guess what, where do you draw your inspirations? Well, it's it's mostly anything to do with soul and um, some of the stuff that's mostly within the urban culture is what we what we do. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a rapper, um, and then we've got the the quartet who are the band that kind of play at the momentum. They they do a lot of soul um, and R and B stuff, um, yeah, jazz, hip hop, hip hop. Yeah. It's it just very varies depending on. Whose artist kind of jumps on stage? Yeah, actually, yeah, but very much on that tip, like anything groovy. That's it. <laughs> anything that makes all it things groovy. And dance. That's it's crazy. Yeah, because I've been to some of your your sessions. Ah, there's this one guy. I forget his name. Uh, yeah. Oh shit! He, he was singing Fresh Prince that night. He was oh, doing yeah, Kendrick. Seiko. Seiko. Oh. That's that guy is very. Good. He's very awesome, talented. Dude. He's um. He's actually. You know that that's a funny. It's a funny thing you mentioned that because. Seiko is the reason I actually started doing music. Um, I'd, I'd always done music um, in the past um, as, as part of my childhood growing up. But when I moved to Australia, which was 10 years ago, Seiko um, had just discovered that he wanted to do music. And he was in high school at the time. So I, I wanted to try and create an environment where, whereby he could, you know, stay out of the streets and, and you know, focus on pursuing something, um, you know, pursuing something worthwhile. And so I started buying all this music equipment, and as I was buying all that stuff, he was singing, and then he got me to do a couple of verses on some songs, and yeah, away we go. Now, a few years later, he's teaching me how to how to perform on stage, and he's killing it. Yeah, so it's it's a pretty interesting story. See, I, I didn't actually know this. It looks like we've we've kind of rehearsed this beforehand, and no, uh, and then I kind of like <laughs> you're like, oh hey. Uh, Seiko, oh, and then I'd mention him, and then you just tell this whole just, entire backstory. That's it. I'm a man of many stories. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I guess you you were actually talking. You were saying something really interesting off here um, about you saying that you recently, I think, went back to Zimbabwe. Yeah. Um, and you just realized. Yeah, the whole identity crisis thing. So, just to give the listeners a backstory, we were talking about accents and how um, growing up now, everybody's just has lost their uh, original accent and has kind of picked up onto the accent that they watch on TV, um, which is mostly the American accent. And um, I told Ahmed that, you know, only recently I just discovered that I was having an identity crisis um, and it was part of an interview I was doing uh, with another person uh, from the Still Nomads. And <clears throat> basically what happened was last year I went I went back home um, and this is after about nine years and I, w- I went back for my grandfather's funeral but everything had changed like I couldn't relate to uh, to some of the people that were there like my family um, the kids that I left who had just started primary school were finishing primary school so they had changed in my head and I like they were no longer the kids I could just pick up and lift and throw around um, so I kind of I kind of lost myself um, and it's only a couple of weeks ago when, when it was part of the conversation that as I was talking I was more or less talking to myself that I realized that man I'm I kind of just don't know who I am at the moment, um, which I found very interesting because that I'm, I'm always trying to discover new parts of myself. So I've been journeying that over the last few weeks, and it's been quite interesting. You know, it sounds very interesting because you told me that 
I thought you had this. I thought you were from America. Yeah. So that's why you had that kind of American accent. American accent. That's right. But then you had this British twang as well. So that's I was it. a bit confused. Yeah, and, and th- that's that's mostly. And it's funny because a lot of people always say that. Um, and it's because growing up, like uh, I went to to school in Zimbabwe, which is a British colony. So we we're taught in the Queen's English, as they say. And having watched a lot of American TV, the A Team being my favorite TV show, um, I kind of picked up. Uh, the the American accent subconsciously, and something that I mentioned offline was I learned English from an Irish lady, so I actually had an Irish accent when I started speaking. Um, that's a story my parents always tell me, but they didn't record it. That would have been the funniest thing ever. We could have played it now. It yeah, we could have. Hilarious. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so I always joke to people the reason why I have an American twang to my accent is because of American cultural imperialism. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Blame it on the Americans. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That's cool. Yeah. yeah I, I, so I guess um, I know you've got a gig coming up. Uh, I think it's Saturday. So yeah. I guess tell us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. The Royal Jam. <laughs> crazy gig. Um, so we're partnering again. Um, so we've been partnering with Melbourne Music Week over the past three years. Um, and uh, so last year we actually threw a Royal Jam, like a three nights, three days sort of big Royal Jam disco thing. Uh, people can come in and hire roller skates and we've got live bands playing on stage and DJs and all that kind of stuff. So we're doing it again this year at the Melbourne Music Week Hub. Um, so it's going to be like an afternoon party and we're teaming up with Misrisk who's been throwing these awesome sort of block parties um, at Section 8 over the past few years. Um, so we're basically teaming up to do sort of a block party slash roller jam where people can come in and just an afternoon where they can dress up and come roller skate and we've got... A um, few bands lined up, so it's all going to be live music. So we've got uh, the 3070 Collective, which are really v- very much on the sort of instrumental hip-hop kind yeah, of tip. Yeah, they're crazy good. Yeah. So there will be very much like a s- lot of slow jams, but at the same time we also have Public Opinion 6 booked. So those guys are crazy into the all the, how would you say, Afro-funk type, yeah, Afro-funk, of, yeah, type of stuff. And then we've got our quartet, so the, the Foreign Brothers house band, um, jumping at the end, sort of doing a massive jam session with... Yeah. You, my frenzy, That's it. That's and it. a whole heap of guests. We've got Anthony Jones, One Six, and uh, we've got too many pedophysics. Uh, a lot of guys that have been following us along the way. Simon J. Excel. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy lineup. You should totally come. Um, I think it's going to be my first time there, but from from what I've heard, talking to to the to the guys, it's it's something that is just crazy. Like it just goes off. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's actually bringing an element of fun to to what we're doing so it just kind of breaks the boundaries straight away because you know you get these events all the time where people kind of like they don't really interact but like roller skating just kind of breaks all these boundaries so you could just look cool but if you don't know how to roller skate you're kind of out <laughs> you know what I mean so <laughs> oh, it's really yeah, like the last time I roller skated I think it was hmm how old was I I think I was maybe 12 yeah, wow yeah. <laughs> I'm don't 21 worry, you just right pick now, it up so again so you just have to yeah, you can pick it up go again. slowly <laughs> once, once it's in the system, it doesn't leave, right? <laughs> That's like, like I, I hope so. I think I found something of of of, of uh, the Foreign Brothers Roller Jam 2014. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. That's there like a wrap up video. Yeah, oh. which was also yeah. So, so, so you guys uh, hop online. We'll probably send in uh, send out a link. Yeah, uh, awesome. for that. Um, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Appreciate thanks so it. much for having us. Yeah, it's awesome. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. And we are going to head to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And coming up, we've got Noel Carmen's Adele Twist to a Fairuz classic. Ahmed, how about we play some?
don't know, I don't date white guys, which is really weird, but like, it's just like, it's not necessarily a decision I made, it's just something that just sort of came, and like, I've noticed a pattern, I guess. <laughs> um, do you think the pattern is, I don't know, like a good, a good thing for you? It's worked in your favour? Yeah, it's, it's worked in my favour, I'd say, yeah. <laughs> Australian people here they're really nice yeah yeah I like the Australian people but maybe that's because they also actually migrated mostly from Europe so yeah there's a bit of a connection already there not most people have like grandparents come from Europe and stuff so you have something more yeah. to talk about you have particular preferences of certain culture groups over others um, yeah I think so yeah <laughs> what, what, what are they for you comfortable uh, yeah, I feel a bit more comfortable around Europe people from Europe or Aussie people yeah or if they at least speak properly English or yeah if they look Asian but they they are from Europe or their parents are European or Aussie then it's a bit, bit more comfortable we have to consider whenever we want to become a relationship first uh, I don't believe in religion but anyway I mean that the background the business is important because for example a Muslim cannot become friends with a Jewish Okay, so I don't believe in religions, but anyway, but it has an effect. The other thing is the one of them is religion. The other one is the nationality. For example, in Iranian, cannot. Uh, there are a lot of cases, but you know, it's rare. But you know, actually, so the nationality, for example, in Iranian, cannot uh, marry to, for example. I don't know, maybe Chinese. So they have some conflict. So I think two things that I reached. Do you have any- You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. Now we're going into our segment, The Week That Was, where we highlight what's been happening during the past week. Ahmed, you can take it from here. Yes, um, so I'm just trying to muddle with my scripts. This past week, Hezbollah Tahrir has courted controversy um, and they've been calling out some things that have been going on in recent weeks and saying the singing of the Australian anthem is actually forced assimilation. Um, and this week, Ifran Yusuf spoke about um spoke about his battery and comparing them to some of uh, arguably one of the uh, uh con- most controversial yeah. controversial oh, now I'm just trying to f- most controversial characters in Australian media um here's what Ifran had to say and this is why I say, if I were to compare Hizbut Tahrir to anyone in Australia in the mainstream, I would compare them to Andrew Bolt. Oh, that's absolutely I mean, they are the that Andrew is Bolts. absolute rubbish. They are the Andrew this Bolts is of an the organisation that has been banned by at They've least four countries as a terror organisation. And you're comparing them to Andrew Bolt. You ought to be, dis- you know, you ought to be ashamed of They've been banned in Uzbekistan. You're kidding, aren't you? I, I, I no? really do think that, yeah, probably the best way to compare them to is, is to someone like Andrew Bolt. Yeah, right. Good on you. So, Mina, what, what do you think about that comparison with Andrew Bolt? That was on the project earlier um, this week. Well, I think both um, one individual and also the organization represent quite extreme ideals. Um, it's obviously two sides of the spectrum. 
but it's kind of unfortunate that a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people seem to think that Andrew Bolt is quite legitimate and uh, HT is not. And for me, I feel like, well, they're both pretty much on the same spectrum. I don't really, I mean, they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, but they're just as extreme, I would say. Uh, on the line, we have uh, Yasser Morsi, a critical race theorist. Hi, Yasser. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, so Yasser, um, I guess, w- what have you made of the comments and wh- what do you think? I think, um, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion, I guess. It's a big discussion about um, all sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, some of it we got right, some of it is... I guess you're probably very familiar with Ifran's work and him saying and calling out uh, his battalion and saying they're the, Australia, they're, they're the Muslim version of Andrew Bolt. Do you think it was out there? Look, I know what he's trying to say. Basically, um, he's trying to uh, highlight the fact that there are if you will, conservative-like voices that are trying to, um, who are basically polemic, all about the rhetoric, and who are dependent on a us-v-them kind of mentality. Of course, um, there are similarities, but my answer would be no. Um, Andrew Bolt belongs to a, um, a particular, you know, history where uh, conservatism is tied to concepts of white Australia and his Tahrir, in Australia is a minority voice within a minority. So if we read it from the position of power, then look, similarities, yeah, but where it matters, no. Have you felt that, what are your opinions on, I guess, the way they've organised? They've been holding big discussions and I guess organising up to 800 people at certain seminars. What do you think about that? Muslims are, you know, we're, we're like the rest of the world. We, we're... We go to events that are based on the topic, not just whether or not it's a group. The particular topic in question, um, government intervention, is an important one. It's an interesting one. And with the promise of hearing first-hand experiences, yeah, a lot of a lot of Muslims and non-Muslims would be interested in, in hearing that. It's kind of like this moral panic that when we start counting numbers, because it taps into this idea that, you know, there's a significant section in the community that are... Uh, are growing in their radicalization and so forth. But, you know, the way I see it was, you know, there may be a, may, sometimes that is, critics could have gone, their own members could have gone, people who are just interested in the topic could have gone. It's hard to read numbers and so forth. But, you know, I think the topic itself is what was attractive, attracting people. And they've had other um, events which have not brought in anywhere near the amount of people. So, as I said, I'll go back to my first sentence. Muslims are like the rest of the world, man. Like there's certain things that are uh, interested, are interested in, and I think a debate about how the government is dealing with the issues of radicalization and whether or not it's Islamophobic is going to attract a certain amount of numbers. And if Hezbollah does anything good, then it does. Its capacity to sell its events um, are probably be- better than most other organisations. Basically, whatever they say, we say the opposite. Um, there is a risk of that. Uh, look, if you ask my opinion on Hezbo Tahrir, they're a group that the vast majority of what they do is based on their rhetoric. And their rhetoric is one of uh, pursuing an authentic Islam, untainted from any influences from the West, pure in its legal origins, pure in its historical origins. And so they reject most things that 
they deem Western and its influence on Islam. It's a bit, a bit amateurish at times, but you know, there's uh, it's the result of certain historical um, relationships the Muslim world has had with the West. I guess what you're you're a critical race theorist, so I, I wanted to ask you this question in a sense, um, as how his are trying to escape from ideas of the West, and and then by doing that, do they also look at the um, I guess the white gaze when they do that, centering everything yeah. about that instead of trying to find their own niche, so to speak. Yeah, there's a couple. That's a good question. There's a couple of points you want to highlight. The first is. I absolutely believe that uh, the West, quote-unquote, um, when you want to call it the white gaze, the Western gaze, is, at least in Australia, um, it's on another group here, is central to absolutely everything they do. And it seems it runs through their literature even when it's beyond Australia. Um, and the sense that their understanding of decolonization or movement towards an authentic Islam is simply talking to the West. And the West becomes here this overriding kind of gaze. It's like a the disgruntled son who must tell the father he wants to leave. And that's a power relationship nevertheless and it always reoccurs. Um where part of the problem is here is they make the they expand the West beyond its borders. So suddenly things like feminism becomes Western. Um everything related to capitalism becomes Western. Globalization becomes Western. Almost everything. So um but look to be blunt it's hard to read in too much of their, into their politics because it's not grounded on anything other than their own um, kind of on-the-spot rejection of what's been said. So if a politician comes out and said something, they will reject it. And that's, in a sense, what we mean by kind of continually um, valorizing the Western days. The other thing is, if you read the literature, and it's probably not the right place to get into it, it's deeply, deeply influenced by what we call a Western or white, white reading of history. They actually believe, um, they interpret history in the same way, say, white liberals would interpret the history. The story from Plato to NATO sort of thing. And all they do is negate it. So from a critical race theory, quote unquote, they don't actually challenge the guarantee truths of the West. They believe in it too, but the difference is they negate it. And in a sense, for many, that's not really a decolonization movement. That's just a negation. Like it's a continue, you're attached to the version of history, the values of uh, democracy in order to negate them. Thanks, Yasser, for your time. Um, that was Yasser Mursi, a critical race theorist. Um, and um, I guess moving on, uh, we're going to be looking at what, Amina? Well, we're moving on to... Um Sorry, George Brandis, but I think we've got a quick music break coming up. Yes, we do. Uh, what, what will we be playing? Pen Masala Aisha. And so we're going to head off to a quick music break. Don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And... Do you, um, have you heard of the term white privilege? White privilege? No, not really. What do you think it means? I wouldn't even know. No, I haven't got a clue. Don't know. Seriously. Privilege means being able to uh, go where you want without fear of being attacked um, or like persecuted for how you look. Yeah. Hey. All right. So no, five seconds. Five seconds. Go for it. All right. So, what does the term white privilege mean to you? 
What is what? Uh, there's not such a thing, man. Not for me. You? No, man. We are all the same. Oh, blood is red. We are all the same. All brothers. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Uh. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Well, privilege for white people, I guess. Yeah, so is this like racism kind of stuff? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Just off your head. Oh, well, I guess Centrelink. White privilege, I guess, is the kind of um, specialty or privileges that the white people have here. I mean, we are talking about the local white Australian. They're having, you know, having access to welfare, housing, and everything that is um, being state provided. I assume. What does the term white privilege mean to you? Um. Wow, that's a that's a pretty hard hitting question. Um, I suppose white privilege is kind of a monopoly of power and ideas when it comes to things like business, politics, government, media, uh, even things like the police and the military, dominated by people who all have uh, a collective set of assumptions that never get tested by the people around them. ...to Sin 90.7 FM and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all of the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. So Attorney General George Brandis lashed out on the criticism and bigoted responses that Tony Abbott's speech earlier in the week um, when talked about the Christian value of loving thy neighbor in reference to Europe's refugee policy. I think we've got a crowd for that. This wholesome instinct is leading much of Europe into catastrophic error. All countries that say anyone who gets here can stay here, are now in peril, given the scale of the population movements that are starting to be seen. There are tens, perhaps hundreds of millions of people living in poverty and danger who might readily seek to enter a Western country if the opportunity is there. And who could blame them? Yet no country or continent can open its borders to all comers without fundamentally weakening itself. And this is the risk that the countries of Europe now run through misguided altruism. Stopping the boats and restoring border security is the only truly compassionate thing to do. So that was Abbott talking about what Europe are not doing and in reference to his Christian beliefs of loving thy neighbor but also understanding you have to look after yourself and that was um, met with a lot of criticism and Brandis 
George Brandis, Attorney General, wasn't happy with any, was quick to come out in support of his former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, saying the incessant sneering and ridiculing of Tony Abbott on account of religious faith was bigotry at its most shameless, which is in stark contrast to his views previously on, uh, on, on the rights of bigots and what they can and cannot say. Mr President, people do have a right to be bigots, you know. In a free country, people do have rights to say things that other people find offensive or insulting or bigoted. So everyone has the right to be bigoted unless you're being bigoted towards Tony Abbott or members of the Liberal Party, it seems. So I I guess, Mina, so bigots don't really have rights. Why is Brandis backtracking? Well, I think this is a case of selective, you know, cognitive dissonance of sorts, um, selective rights, I guess you could say. I think when he talks about everybody has a right to be bigot, clearly he was talking about everybody that disagrees with him, or sorry, that dis, yeah, people um, who don't agree with him, basically. And all of a sudden, I think he's flipped the coin on this simply because it doesn't match his agenda. So again, it's not so much about freedom of speech. It's nothing to do with that. It is nothing to do with freedom of expression. It's just a matter of power, who can say what, when can they say it, and it's just using very clever figurative language. Honestly, that's what it sounds like to me. What do you think? Um, I, I agree. Um, it's It's kind of the thing where it's allowing... Um, it's it's policing other people from from calling out racism, um, and in in that clip, going further along, he says the that racial discrimination act doesn't cover um, racial uh, like basically race, racial taunts and and what have you. So he's saying that in its current form, the racial discrimination act doesn't cover um, racial abuse in in a sense of whether it be uh, verbal or or what have you. So in a sense. He's saying that, well, other people take a back step. There's actually nothing in the const- in the constitution or in in any kind of law written that says no, you can't be a racist or or what have you. But when it comes to things that he cares about, he's more quickly and able to to um, I guess defend the corner of of his mate. Right, so, and I think also the clever use of. You know, um, everybody has the right to be a bigot or whatever. You know, the freedom of freedom of expression and freedom of speech are common, common tools that people like to bring out to justify their hatred without realizing that actually um, the freedom of, freedom of speech and freedom of expression actually comes from a particular philosophy, and that philosophy includes the harm principle. So if what you're going to say is going to cause harm to a people or different peoples, then maybe that is actually not part of freedom of speech. And people seem to forget about that principle. And yeah, so we are going to head to another music break. Don't forget to get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767. What is racism? No idea, mate. No idea? Depends who you're asking. My friend will tell you I'm very racist. <laughs> no, you're not. What's my definition of racism? Well, doesn't it? People, racist people are racist people. They don't like any other colours, nationalities. Yeah. Thank you.
What is racism to me? Something stupid. I don't agree with it. Don't like it. Don't think it should exist. What's racism? Um, I don't know. Racial prejudice. What about you? Just ignorance and hate. Um, fear of other races. What about your friend? Fear of other races. You can't copy my answer. Thanks. You're listening to Sin 90.7 FM, and we are the race card. Remember, you can get involved in all the discussions by texting in on 0427-767-767 or tweet us at the race card. And that was Josh Levy and KHS, their cover of Trap Queen by Fetty Wap. And this week, we've seen a few headlines come out about Australia's ongoing treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. During a protest, a woman breastfeeding her child refused to move in in protest of... Australia's treatment of refugees and asylum seekers. But also former Prime Minister Julia Gillard was on Al Jazeera talking about issues she faced during her time in office. She said asylum seekers on Nauru were subjected to toxic and inhumane conditions with human rights completely sidelined. The UN Human Rights Committee found that Australia on your watch had breached the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights by detaining refugees arbitrarily and indefinitely. Well, That's they, pretty strong stuff. Uh, and uh, I would uh, dispute a number of those things. The Amnesty's but we're wrong, talking, the UN Human Rights Committee's wrong. We're talking about past history. Uh, the current government has its own sets of policies. I'm not asking about the current government, I'm asking about your government. Yeah, yes, and I'm happy to answer it, but really, so, so realistically... So were they toxic conditions? Realistically, we're talking about past history where I understand people will debate, they do within my own country, and they do globally, and let's look at what's happening in Europe now and some of the debates and, and, and about Europe has what its own problem. So, we, I guess we tend to harp on about the current government, uh, coalition government and their stop the boat policy and Tony Abbott's rhetoric as just as we, we heard before. But do we neglect, I guess, the policies of the former Labour government under Gillard and, and Rudd? Um, I think we give them a little bit more leeway by virtue of their party. I don't think it's so much out of compassion or that they were more compassionate. Um, although perhaps there were times where things were eased and times where that was actually tightened when we're talking about border security. And really, border security is just code word for, like, let's keep all these people of color out, particularly when they are no use to us, when they are pretty much the most marginalized. So, yeah, I think they do get away with it. But at the same time, we have to remember that a lot of these policies or the attitude that takes place in these kind of conversations when we talk about foreign policy, domestic policy. A lot of it predates um, a lot of these governments. Um, what do you think, Ahmed? I guess, like, as you just said, I guess we, a lot of people in, in the media and just in the general public think about, have preconceived notions of, of certain political parties and um, and their and their values as those political parties. Instead of, um, I guess, judging um, what's happening in the here and now, if you know what I mean? People look at Labour as the as the progressive, 
as the the party that is the more bastion of Australian politics, um, and and not looking. But even even when we do look at history, we look at a very kind of convenient history. We don't look at the, com- the history that saw the Labor Party, um, I guess, head up the, the the white Australia policy. We don't look at the the Labor Party that um, decided to rally the unions and repatriate. Um, uh, Pacific Island uh, slaves and uh, as well as uh, and that sort of thing and, and send um, Chinese merchants uh, as well as Chinese merchants back. So so all those kinds of things and, and leading um, a discussion where it's a very kind of 21st century, um, late 20th century idea of the Labour Party and not necessarily looking at whether if we do look at history, we look at very convenient history and our discussions are very skin deep. This is right. Um, I do agree. I don't divest from that thinking. <laughs> See, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're not having those really hard and um, those um, those really kind of like disagreeing um, disagreeing um, arguments. Um, but I, let's. I guess let's look at the devil's advocate because a lot of people love the devil's advocate um, discussions. Why? Would you look favorably on Julie Gillard's time in in office? I guess. Do you do you think that she was under a lot of pressure because she was in a minority government? Mm. Do we look at the, the the fact that she was the first woman in office, and a lot of inherent sexism that she had to deal with? Um, are, are these are the reasons where more where where history might look more kindly to to Julia Gillard um, instead of someone say Tony Abbott or a uh, Kevin Rudd. Right. Um, I think there's an element of that. I think when we look at the nuance within governments, we can definitely see that as a first woman prime minister who faces a lot of rampant sexism, um, a lot of talk whether this person is actually competent for the job, whether this person is right for the role. And that has marked her entire um, date in office, basically. So, yeah, I think history might look kindly at it, um, depending on who writes the history. Um, that depends on that too. Um, but also, I think when we choose between the two, we tend to um, we tend to pick the the lesser of the two devils, if that makes sense, the lesser of the two evils. And for a lot of people, that looks like labor, and for that reason, they probably get off um, off the hook. Even though in reality, you could argue that both parties are vying for the most vicious policy right now. Um, even back then, when uh, sorry, um, during Julie Gillard's time, when she was in office, it wasn't vastly different. It was pretty much that they were still vying for vicious policies that can still satisfy xenophobic and racist sentiments. So we commonly hear assertions such as Islam is not a race and its many variations from right-wingers, anti-Muslim protesters and sympathizers alike to discredit and excuse the tide of Islamophobia. While Islam isn't and of itself not a race, how then can Islamophobia be racism? We speak to student activist Taz to discuss this further. Hi. Hi, Taz. Welcome to the race card. Well, thank you for having me. All right. So how about we just get straight to this? What is Islamophobia? Is it racism? Well, I suppose to start off with, um, just to describe Islamophobia or attempt to describe it, um, it's basically this uh, phenomenon in which 
Islamists view it as the cause of radicalization, extremism, and terrorism, and not the context for them, for example. Um, it's easier than considering, um, it's easier and convenient, I suppose, in considering, instead of considering the core political issues and grievances that resonate in the Muslim world, such as the failures of governments and societies, um, the nature of American foreign policy, which is predicated on intervention and dominance, um, Western support for authoritarian regimes as well, um, you don't need to look far into to find content across multiple multiple media platforms, which are uh, crisis-oriented, headline-driven, fueling stereotypes, fears, and discrimination. Um, Islam is also seen as a triple threat, um, such as political, civiliza civilizational, and demographic, by scholars and journalists alike, and thus trivializing the complexity of political, social, and religious dynamics in the Muslim world. Right. So, is it racism? Simply put, I I I definitely think it is racism because it is something that is deeply um, institu institutionalized um, in legislative, judicial, and executive branches. We we just you know we can take a look at you know the legislation that's been passed throughout the last year and how it disproportionately targets Muslim people. The way how media reports on um, you know so-called Muslim crimes and um, they're never you know this the way how they rape mosques. Uh, schools, that we have a speak of Muslim schools, for example, um, you know, creating this, uh, creating fear and manufacturing fear as well within the community, for example. Um, you know, if you ask anyone in the Muslim community, you know, what, what are their concerns, they'll tell you it's um, more like social mobility, uh, job opportunity, but the way how we're forced to think is that, oh, we have to care about radicalization because that's what um, the white establishment, establishment wants us to think about and wants us to care about, and therefore reinforcing this this idea that we are in fact a, a problem in in Australia. Right, and so when you talk about um, Islamophobia being racism, one of the things that come to my mind is how Sikhs, for example, in a post nine eleven world, particularly how they're also targeted. They're basically a tar targets of hate crimes. And people often say that, oh, these people don't know the difference between Sikhs and Muslims. But for me, that's a very obvious racialization because it's not about looking, sorry, it's not about being Muslim. It's more about how you're racialized, how you're understood. And it just happens that Sikhs who wear turbans and such are understood as Muslim. And so they get attacked. Um, brown people get attacked. Black people get attacked. As a matter of fact, um, a few days ago, was it last week, um, there was a woman who was attacked at State Library. Um, State Library Victoria, and you know, I sometimes wonder how many hate crimes does it take for Islamophobia to be actually understood and to be a thing. But coming back to what you said when you talked about institutionalization, foreign policy, and the like, what is Islamophobia industry, and how does it work? Um, I guess to exemplify the extent of how pervasive Islamophobia is, uh, I won't be able to go into detail of its history and the development um, of it um, for the interest of time, but Islamophobia is a very profitable industry with an elaborate network of um, $57 million in funding, at least in America alone. I'm sure we can think of many political parties, bloggers, writers, authors, TV show hosts, and ex experts that profit from these endeavors while also being heralded as brave and friends of free speech. Um, there's also this great website called the Islamophobia Network dot com, where which which actually really uh, nicely lays out a very brief profile of each player, um, and how they how they actually link to each other as well, and how they um, support each other's work and even pay each other's legal fees, for example. Right, and who benefits from Islamophobia? 
from the Islamophobia industry? Who doesn't and why? Well, Islamophobia is quite interesting. Like, if I can give an example with like the, the situation, at, well, I can speak in Australia today, of uh, the way um, Muslims have been campaigning, um, you know, whether you're pro-Assad or anti-Assad, um, they've been, you know, talking about this issue in Syria um, for four, four years now. And it's only, you know, last year, suddenly there's this uh, big uproar that, oh, you know, all these Muslims are joining ISIS, they're doing all this stuff. Like, and it's such a, it's such a, a really hurtful thing towards the community because we have been highlighting the issue in Syria, um, you know, for, for a long time now. And suddenly our activism has just been hijacked and we've been told that, you know, we're uh, the enemy of the state. Right. And um, I guess just to come come to a close to this discussion, I'm thinking about how is the Muslim subject constructed? So obviously when the, you know, Western civilization, I guess if you can say, um, when they met up with um, the Muslim empires, these were this was an empire that, you know, had maths, that had incredible astrological, scientific innovations. But yet, one thing that they took away from it, or the several things they took away from it, was that they were barbaric, that they were terrible to their women, um, that they were backward. So in spite of, you know, they've taken coffee from us. <laughs> they've taken, you know, uh, Hindu-Arabic numerals. Why is it the Muslim subject is constructed as such? Well, this is not based on fact. You know, it's it's obviously it's based ultimately on prejudice. Like when the Crusades were happening, which is probably one of the what what is kind of established as the relationship between the West and Islam, for example, is seen as a one of conflict and and um, you know warfare and a clash of civilization. When it, when in reality, well, you know, Muslims in the West and uh, coexistence between them have existed even before the 11th and 12th century. Um, you know, we can we can just imagine, for example, um, Muslims living in in you know in Andalus in Spain, um, so these and it's interesting because if you look at the Crusades, if you look at um, Pope Urban II and his um, uh, in his papal degree, he, his decree, he doesn't actually mention the word Muslim because, um, but he seems to know a lot. He apparently knew a lot of allegations about what um, Muslims and were. Um, he actually uses the word um, Arabs and Turks, and. Is it very little less? It's really not about facts, but more about creating that fear, creating the reason why you need to go into, you know, the heart of the Middle East, a place where you don't speak the language, you're following the culture, you're not really familiar with the religion. So it's it's essentially just propaganda. Right, and I think one of the things we talk about off air is we we tell each other that oppression doesn't actually have to be logical. It doesn't have to make sense. It just has to oppress. Yeah, it's definitely not logical. If you look at, you know, 100 or so years ago, Muslims were seen as this very, you know, uh, too sexual. You know, the Mughals were just too sexual. They're, you know, uh, the Turks were just bloodthirsty, and but also they were so hypersexual with their harems. And you go and you look today, like, oh, we're seen as sexually repressive. Like, you know, we stole women for, you know, um, uh, engaging in, you know, sexual acts um, with their own autonomy and. Right. Um, so I think that concludes our, our show. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you again. That's all right. And that's our show for this week. 
Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to podcast. If you just tuned in and want to hear the rest of the show, you can follow the show on Twitter at The Race Card. And our co hosts are. Uh, me, Ahmed Yusuf. You can follow me on Twitter at Ahmed Yusuf10, the number 10. Um, and pretty sure you can find the show on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash race card show. Um, and also find us on iTunes searching on. Uh, searching race card and and yeah I, yeah that's, I think that's everything I think that's housekeeping in order for right. this show um that was me Ahmed you saying goodbye and I still don't have Twitter but please get on at the race card we'll see you next week or we'll listen listen to us next week yeah listen to us <laughs> next week yeah bye Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.